Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. We're going to think about big decisions that we make for the kingdom. And we're going to look at what Jesus says about lust and adultery. Okay? And what Jesus says is what is hidden within us is what defines us. The things that nobody else can see very often define how we behave. The inner workings of our heart form our external behaviour. Even the things that you, you ponder on. Uh, that maybe you, you allow your mind to go to, perhaps even the things that you look at, actually slowly but surely begin to affect how you behave. And when Jesus kicked off his brand new kingdom and he began to explain what his kingdom would look like, how his people would begin to behave, how they would treat each other, how they would interact with the world around them, what they would represent, he was really thinking a lot about what was going on in their hearts. The first victories for his kingdom as it advances actually are in our hearts because when your heart changes, then your behaviour begins to change as well. And then when your behaviour changes, actually, you begin to have impact on the world around you. So Jesus was on the side of this mountain. He was teaching and preaching his sermon. And when he began, one of the first things he said was, blessed are the pure in hearts, for they shall see God. Uh, and we've gone over the Beatitudes in the last few weeks, as uh, Beth and I have taught on this. We've uh, come back to this, and we should keep coming back to the Beatitudes. They kind of define the whole Sermon on the Mount. Uh, blessed are the pure in heart is a, a very important moment. And it seems to me that Jesus taught these things because he saw us as powerful agents of change. So when he was teaching his Sermon on the Mount, he wasn't just talking about the things that he would do and that that they would be spectators of the kingdom. Actually, he meant for people who were listening then and for those who read and listen now that actually we are involved in this. We are change agents for his kingdom. We can dramatically affect the dynamics of our families of our friendship groups, perhaps even our workplace or our university, by viewing ourselves this way. Actually, I am, I am part of God's kingdom. I'm one of his people. That means I can bring change wherever I go. And it's important that we remember that we have this purpose. So the Beatitudes were some of the kind of broad headlines of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and then Jesus explains what sort and light uh, it, we were to be. And that kind of explains our atti- uh, the way we would affect the world around us in being like salt and being like light. And then he gets into some pretty deep live issues. Uh, And last week, uh, if you were here, we talked about anger. Uh, And this week, Jesus is talking about lust. And if we forget, if we just take these kind of verses in there uh, on their own and we don't put them in their context, actually, you kind of can run into some danger. It's important to remember this is in the context of God's advancing kingdom of seeing us as part of that, of being those agents of change. And if we take some of his teaching in isolation, then we can perhaps start adding rules that Jesus didn't have and start adding ways of behaviour that Jesus didn't talk about. Actually, we need to understand it in its context. 
And he is showing us that participation in his kingdom can change the world. It's a very grand statement. So uh, perhaps you have moved to Manchester recently. Perhaps you've come back after a summer break or you're here quite uh, as a new person into this city. Actually, it's helpful to think I come into this city as someone who can bring change here by following Jesus. By actually allowing the kingdom to work on the hidden places of my heart brings change to the place I live and to the people around me. Jesus wants us to play, play a part in his kingdom by having pure hearts. And for him, that meant, okay, there are big decisions that you get to make. And so we're going to think about some of those big decisions this morning. We're going to try and look at what lust is. We're going to try and understand it. We're also going to think about why it was a big deal. Why did Jesus put it in the Sermon on the Mount? Why, why was he interested in this? And then we'll think a bit about how we make those big decisions. And Jesus gives us some clues. So we're going to read. It's in Matthew 5. If you've got uh, Bibles on your phones or a paper version, if not, it will appear up behind me. It says Matthew 5, verses 27 to 32. And Jesus says this. He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with a lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. I remember a number of years ago reading an article online, a newspaper, and where the writer of this article, this journalist, was, she was just kind of giving her views on marriage. And she said, actually, it could be quite helpful for a marriage if there is an affair, if one of them has an affair, it can be quite good for the marriage because people need to act on their impulses. Uh, People need to be true to themselves. We also live in a time where uh, sex and lust are used to sell almost any products that you can imagine, from a chocolate bar to home insurance. Uh, We are bombarded with these images and it is very monetized in order to get us to tune in and spend our money and sex is used to provoke that. And if someone was to speak up against that, then they would be considered prudish, perhaps. Or maybe even at worst, they would be considered oppressive, actually, if you were to speak up against the way that sex or marriage is talked about. Also, we live now in the era of Me Too, where uh, lots of women uh, stood up and said, I've been uh, treated badly by men. I've been sexually assaulted, sometimes in horrifying ways. Uh, And that caused many people, many women to stand up and say, yeah, this has happened to me uh, too. Now, we also live in the era of Russell Brands, uh, with all that we have seen about him recently. Uh, Even in that era, this time that we live in, we don't often talk about lust. We don't often talk about what goes on in people's hearts to cause this behaviour. So we need to approach this perhaps with some maturity as well. It is a complex issue, a difficult issue. Uh, And we also live in a very complex time And a difficult time, and we have to work hard to apply this stuff to our lives. Now, it can be easy when we live in a complex time and we're dealing with a complex issue to just kind of back away from it and think, you know, somebody else can can deal with this. Uh, This is uh, too much for me. But actually, very simply, we can read the words of Jesus 
and allow them to speak to us. We can allow him to challenge us and love us in what he says. We must also remember in this that in the Beatitudes, Jesus calls us to be a merciful people, to be a meek people, and to be peacemakers as well. That is our great call. He also calls us to be righteous and to be pure as well. And I think that gives us a good way of trying to deal with these difficult issues. So we have to see ourselves as the church, as God's people, as those agents of change in our city. Actually, our job is to bring hope in this context. When we take part in seeing the advance of God's kingdom, we are pointing forward to a better way, aren't we? We're pointing forward to a better way of living life. And actually, Jesus says that. He says, look, there should be no more pain, no more, no more sickness, no more death, no more suffering, no more exploitation. We are pointing forward to that better way that is in the future, but is also beginning to emerge now in his kingdom. We are cheerleaders for that hope. So in these verses, Jesus is making something very clear to us. He's making it very clear that actually lust can destroy. And we're going to do our best to understand this. So what is lust? What, what does Jesus mean by lust? In verse 27, he starts, he says, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Okay. And in this, Jesus is quoting the seventh commandment that God gave to Israel in, in the book of Exodus. If you were to read your Old Testament, you would find it there in one of the Ten Commandments. You shall not commit adultery. But everybody who was listening to Jesus at that moment would also have known that he was quoting lots of other teachers at that time. Lots of other teachers of the law, people who uh, worked in various synagogues, maybe in the temple, people who were part of different religious groups like the Pharisees, uh, or they would have been scribes or, or whoever. They would have often quoted this particular uh, verse, this particular law. So those who were listening knew that Jesus was kind of quoting God, but they also knew he was quoting all of these other people as well. This meant this statement was fully loaded as it, as it came to them and should be as it comes to us. He was kind of quoting people who were quoting God. And we need to keep that in mind. And then Jesus expands on this and he kind of helps us uh, to put some depth in here. So he says, you shall not commit adultery. Remember, that's the quote. But I say to you that any, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So what he's done, he said, look, that first one, that's the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. But I'm explaining it to you through the tenth commandment. He's trying to help them understand the fullness of what God intended. And what was the tenth commandment? Well, that was in Exodus, it says... You shall not covet your neighbour's house. You shall not covet your neighbour's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbour's. That commandment, the 10th one, it is all about what's going on in your hearts, what, what's driving you, what's motivating you. Uh, and coveting, which is an unusual word, we don't use that word very much in the modern world, but basically is wanting something that's not yours and is not yours to have. I really want what they have. And it's a very internal process. That's something that happens in your heart. So you might want somebody else's job. I wish my job was like their job. I really want their job. I, I, I want their relationship. That, what they seem to have is brilliant. Why haven't I got that? I want that. Or perhaps it's their house. I've got a great house. That extra bedroom, I really want that. Or perhaps just their life. They just seem to be able to 
do life in a way. I just I want how they approach life. I want what they have. That's what Jesus is kind of putting into this. Now, last week, if you were here last week, we, we heard Jesus teach that anger is as bad as murder. And he was teaching, really, that murder begins, that kind of outrageous activity that is to kill, begins in self-righteous anger. And we may not, most people don't get angry and then kill someone. That's not how the world uh, mostly works. But you may find yourself trying to undermine reputation or undermine character or undermine integrity. You may find yourself wanting to do damage to someone because there is anger in your heart. Really, anger begins in hearts and leads to death, leads to something bad. And Jesus has taken a very similar line with lust when he says, I say that everyone who looks at a woman, just looks with lustful intent, has already committed adultery in his heart. Lust begins inside, in our heart, in the hidden place. And is the same thing as the act of adultery. Okay, so let's understand a few things here. Uh, what does this word lust mean? What does lustful intent mean? What was, what was Jesus talking about? Well, Jesus makes lust comparable to adultery. And adultery is having sex with someone outside of marriage. That's what it means. And therefore, lust is to think about to ponder, to consider, to meditate on that possibility, on having sex with someone that you are not married to. Okay, and there are a couple of conclusions that we should draw from this. As Jesus talks about this, he is saying sex is for marriage. That's what he's saying. And he's also saying sex is a very broad description of a lot of things. Okay? Now, if lust is something that happens in someone's imagination or in their hearts, You've got to ask yourself the question, well, why does it matter if it's just personally, individually, something that they ponder and think about? Why does it matter? Why is it a big deal? It doesn't usually lead to adultery, Tim. I mean, it's quite a leap and a jump to say you have one bad thought, therefore you're suddenly gone to the extreme end of things there. Why do we need to to worry about it? To be able to understand this a little more, we need to understand all of Jesus' thinking here. Why is he even addressing this as an issue? Why didn't he just think, well, it's personal and private, so I'm not too worried. You, you guys just do your thing and well, just keep it to yourselves. Why did he think that actually this was a problem? Why is it so important that he put it into his first great sermon? So what's the big deal? Well, we need to understand a few things about what God intended for sex and marriage. The first one, right at the beginning of Genesis, Genesis 1.22, one of the instructions to us as humans was to be fruitful and multiply. And that means lots and lots of different things in terms of who we are and our vocation on earth and the roles we play and the advance of God's kingdom and the jobs that we have and the way that we treat people is all very fruitful and brings multiplication, but also includes our role of producing children. So that's an important part that was in Jesus' mind. The the second uh, thing that is in Jesus' mind is that marriage represents covenant. So it has a kingdom significance as in it represents a covenant between God and humans. I think, well, what's a covenant? What does that mean? Well, some people would, might talk about marriage being a contract and you are actually legally bound if you were to get married. I was at a wedding yesterday. Those two are now legally bound to each other. But actually a covenant is between humans 
or between man, a woman, and God. That is what marriage is, that covenant there. So actually, yesterday in this wedding, they did that. They made a big deal. They stood at the front of church and said, this is between us two and God. That is a covenant. And you think, well, fine. What, what, does that matter? Why is that a big deal? Actually, throughout the Old Testament, God would refer to Israel, his people, as his bride. as a language that is often used. And the church is now referred to as the bride of Christ. So we may not quite understand this. It is supposed to be a little bit mystical. It's supposed to challenge our thinking a bit. It's supposed to make us curious. It's not simple to understand, but how does this kind of my relationship with my wife, how does that in any way affect the world around me? What's it got to do with God? And how does the world look at that and see my relationship or our relationship with God? It's a, quite an unusual thing. Actually, a little bit later on in the, the Old Testament, in a book called Malachi, the people of God were moaning. And they often do. That comes out in the Old Testament quite a lot. The people of God moan. And they were moaning at God, why aren't you answering our prayers? We've prayed lots of things, but you appear not to be saying very much to us at all. And you're not answering their prayers. And God told them, it's because you're being unfaithful to your wives. Malachi 2 says, why does he not bless us? People of God, why aren't you blessing us, God? Why aren't you giving me the things I want? I have lots of things that I want to happen. They are not happening. Why is that? And the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion and wife by covenant, so the agreement between husband, wife and God, even though you put that into place, he says, did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. He's saying, look, there's the covenant there. You get joined together in your spirit. Hard to understand, especially in the modern world. But God is saying, when you get married before me, you include me in the covenant. You are joined together spiritually. And so therefore, when you have an affair, when you commit adultery, when uh, you lust after someone, when you break that connection, actually, that makes God unhappy. Marriage is important to God because it involves him. And he is involved. He unites and is part of the marriage. So why is it a big deal to Jesus? To fill the earth, represents the covenant. And just lastly, because sex brings a married couple together. Actually, Jesus kind of talks about this a little bit later in Matthew, Matthew 19. He talks about how actually a married couple leave their parents, that's quite important, and they hold fast to each other and become one flesh. When a couple get married, they, be, they are linked together. They are tied together. Even spiritually, they are tied together. And part of that is the fact that they get to have sex with each other. That is part of the whole picture. And it's important that we understand that. You might think, Tim, why are you telling me this? Most of this room isn't married. Why on earth does this matter to us now? Well, actually, it matters because the common misconception in our world today is that sex is purely physical. It's just a, an interaction between two people that has no real impact on them, doesn't really matter very much. Uh, it's just for fun, and then you can go your separate ways. That's perhaps Russell Brand's view of sex. And it would be a pretty common one, I would suggest. It's disposable, really. There's nothing particularly emotional in it. We would say maybe nothing even spiritual at all. It is a disposable thing. 
In Jesus' view, that is not what God's intended. So when Jesus talks about lust and adultery, he can see God's plan for sex and marriage being ignored and broken. And when this happens, there is damage. So earlier on, Jesus, remember, he was quoting that seventh commandment and how he was quoting other people who were quoting it, if that makes sense. He was talking about religious leaders of the time that were quoting God. And he was using that, he was bringing that up in people's mind. Because he was kind of saying, you're, you're, you're talking about the letter of the law, but you're not really looking for what God is saying here. And if we, to look again at what Jesus said later in Matthew, when he talks about husbands and wives kind of leaving family and joining together. In that time, Jesus was talking about divorce again, because the Pharisees were trying to catch him out. They were trying to cause him trouble. The Pharisees taught that a man, and a man particularly, not woman, can divorce his wife as he pleases and marry someone else. And you might think, okay, fair enough, they're allowed to do that. That was fine for the male Pharisees. But in that particular point in history, the woman who experienced that would often find herself really with very little support, probably unable to work, probably cast out of her family, shamed in some way, and looked down upon because she was divorced. So the Pharisees were using women in a somewhat disposable way. So when Jesus began his Sermon on the Mount, and he says, blessed are the poor, and then he teaches on lust, and he teaches on anger and divorce and difficult things, he is seeking to protect. He is seeking to look after those who are, in fact, vulnerable. And so in this, Jesus is saying, look, marriage actually should be a place of safety for a woman and a man. A place of mutuality, a place where it is of benefit to both of you, not a place where one will perhaps get cast aside. Because it involves God, because they are united in spirit. Marriage shouldn't be a place where you are cast aside. And Jesus knew that in lust, there is a victim, always a victim, whether it's someone you look at on the internet, uh, whether it's someone who walks past you on the street, someone who just happens to be in your mind. Actually, lust has an effect, whether it has an effect on your husband or wife if you're married or perhaps maybe on any future husband or wife you may have. It has an effect. Jesus could see the damage that begins with lustful intent. He could see women being cast aside. In fact, probably as he spoke this, people in the crowd could think of people that happened to. Maybe there were even some women there who'd experienced that, perhaps even some men who had cast women aside. He could see families being destroyed, the kingdom of God being damaged by what began in people's hearts. Lust is a, the act of an individual. It's a very, very selfish act. And when Jesus talked about anger, he was talking about a self-righteous anger that wanted revenge and to damage and to assert the rights of the individual. It's totally individualistic and feeds self-righteousness. And in the same way, lust does the same. It's entirely about wanting to receive and to get, but not about giving at all. And relationships... Communities, friendship groups, marriages, churches, workplaces, all of these things work best when people look to give selflessly, to live selflessly. If people look to put others above themselves, to serve others above themselves, then community begins to flourish and thrive. And it's the same in a marriage. It can be very fruitful, actually, when one person wants to put the other first. 
When marriages become a battle for individual identity or to meet your own needs, then actually trouble comes very, very quickly. So God has a very high view of sex and relationships. He created them for our good. He did. He created them to be enjoyed. They are meant to be fun. That's an important part of it. They are meant to be satisfying for us. And they're meant to represent something much bigger than we can understand. Meant to represent God's relationship with humans on earth. And lust is the enemy of that. Because it's totally self-centred. It's about taking and not giving. So what does Jesus say then? How do we make these big decisions for the kingdom? Uh, And one of the most uh, difficult things about teaching on on this sort of stuff, on sex and lust, is the application part of it. This is what you should now go and do and think about. Because it's quite easy to stand here and suggest all sorts of rules uh, and ways of behaving and expectations that the church somehow has for all of you. You all, all go off and do this now. And it can be pretty overwhelming and leads me in danger of just becoming another Pharisee, putting rules and regulations in place. I remember years ago being at a youth camp as a youth, as I once was, and hearing a a talk on sex and relationships. And uh, this speaker was a a very well-meaning chap, and uh, he he kind of did this talk, and there was about five or six hundred teenagers there. And at the end of it, he starts throwing out these crazy suggestions of ways of behaving. And I remember looking around the room and just thinking, no, nobody here is going to do any of those things. Uh, One of them was, if you're not married, the most physical contact you should have is a sideways hug. That's it. You see everybody going there, what? That's the weirdest thing ever. Uh, and you should never watch a film that was above Certificate 12. That's what you think. Uh, n- never watch a film above that. Uh, and again, you can see everybody going, nope, not going to do that. Uh, lust can be kind of one of those things that Christians compete with each other to prove their, their own sense of purity and self-righteousness. Uh, and, but the problem with this stuff And preaching on this and teaching on this and thinking about this is guilt and shame are just waiting to come in, right? Waiting to come and take you out at the ankles. They are the companions of lust. So the devil might tempt you to sin and then he hammers you, if you do, with shame, with guilt. And this often can lead to a desire just to keep things hidden. You know what, I I just feel awful that I've done this or thought about this or this has happened Uh, And then I'm not going to say anything. And perhaps if you are a victim of lust, which we see uh, with the Me Too movement, actually there are many victims and for them guilt and shame comes in as well. You think, this has happened to me. It wasn't my fault. But I feel guilt and shame. So church should be a place where actually we can bring this stuff. We can help each other. We can love each other. We can serve each other. It's going to be a place of grace and mercy. Excuse me. So how do our hearts change? What does Jesus say? Well, actually, he makes a couple of pretty profound suggestions for us. And really, he says you should cut and run. That's what you need to do. Verse 29, he says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better you lose one of your members than your whole body go to hell. There was a guy a few centuries after Jesus called Oregon. 
And he read Jesus' words here and he perhaps missed some of the subtlety of what Jesus was saying and he castrated himself. That's what he did. Uh, And it actually became quite a common practice in the very early church to the point the church had to outlaw it because one of the ways that the kingdom of God grows is by people having children. And if uh, men keep castrating themselves, then that makes it harder to have children. Uh, and, and he was missing some of the subtlety here. But Jesus is making a point. He's, he's trying to help them uh, remember something. And perhaps if they'd have, they were listening to this, um, a particular Old Testament character would have come to mind. They might have remembered Joseph. And Joseph, at one point, was working for a family. He was working for a guy called Potiphar. And Potiphar's wife kind of kept propositioning Joseph. And it's interesting here. There was a clear power dynamic. Joseph was a slave in this house. He wasn't even an employee. He was captured and taken there. And then the most senior person's wife in the house, and she was very senior as well, was trying to use him and abuse him, which often happens to the slaves. And he just kept saying no and kept saying no. And eventually... He just ran. She grabbed him and he ran. And he made a very big decision. And you think, oh, that's good. We'll just do that. We'll run from things that are, that are bad. But actually, that, it didn't turn out super well for Joseph, actually. He ended up in jail for a very long time because of this decision that he made. He really had to trust God in that moment. It was a big decision. A friend of mine was really struggling with porn and just online and he, he hated that he struggled with this uh, and he decided you know what the only way I'm going to beat this is if I make a really big decision so he cancelled his broadband contract he just deleted it he got himself a phone that was like a brick that you couldn't do anything on apart from call people uh, and that was that he just he was so caught up and he was like I have to make a big decision I have to break this another friend of mine as a good friend actually it was first year at university and uh, yeah, just an 18-year-old lad and he was in a girl's dorm room and, and he was a Christian. He was at our church at the time uh, in another town before we lived in Manchester. And uh, he told me the story. He said, yeah, we were kissing and flirting uh, and this girl wasn't a Christian, wasn't part of the church. And, uh, uh, and then this girl said to him, I'm now going to go and get changed. And uh, when we come back, if you're still here, we're going to have sex. And... Uh, my mate was sat on the floor. She went off, his eyes wide. And he was thinking, I've got a very big decision to make at the moment. And he decided to get up and leave. And that's what he did. And it was a very big decision that actually did him a lot of good to get out of there. Make a big decision. No, this is who I am. This is what I'm going to live for. This is who I worship. That means I'm going to lose in this moment. I'm going to go. And big decisions that may have cost, like did for Joseph, like he did for my friend Katzny Broadband, like he did for my friend to get out of that dorm room quickly, actually can yield long-term fruit. A big decision may look like talking with someone about your struggles. It may help, actually, you've got someone to talk to regularly. Uh, sometimes you might call that accountability. Uh, and I should say, accountability actually doesn't work if it's imposed upon you. Okay? If somebody says, I think I should hold you accountable on this, actually, it rarely works If you say, you know what, I'm really struggling, I need your help, Uh, please can you help me, then actually that can bring some freedom. You may need to cut some things out of life. You may know the things that cause you to stumble. Even as I'm talking now, I I won't allow myself to watch late night TV that isn't sport. 
So I like watching sport to relax. I'm often in meetings uh, most evenings and get back late and I just think, I'm going to watch some sport, but I won't watch anything else really. I've learned that when I'm tired, I don't make good decisions. And finally, we remember in this that God has something better for us and we're called to trust him in that. God has a very high view of sex and marriage. He designed them actually to be selfless, to be giving, because that's what Jesus did. So when Jesus is teaching on this, he knows how his story is going to end. He knows where he's going to. He knows his journey to death that will come to him. He knows also that resurrection is coming to him as well, but he knows the deep cost that there will be there. And it was a selfless act. It was a giving act. And that's how we are to view relationships. Living out our purposes in God's kingdom means trusting God and choosing purity. Jesus said, didn't he? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 